welcome back to the next episode of the In Development Podcast. My name is Ryan. This is the podcast for all of you city builders, city shapers, and city dwellers out there that care about driving change toward people-centered communities. On In Development, we talk about how Canadian cities develop in and up. We are presented by IDEA, the Infill Development and Edmonton Association, which is a nonprofit education and advocacy group that brings together like-minded people working to shape our city. Today's intro is going to be uh, that and then me saying there's nothing to define. It's a very technical episode. The guest actually does a very good job of defining everything that you need to know in the episode. So without further ado, let's go talk to him about shaping our city. So today we have a really exciting guest. I am very, very stoked on this because Ryan and Sikander are going to talk over my head for the next hour. And I am going to learn so much with all of you listening here today. So the guest that we have here today is Sikander Singh. He is a professional engineer and the founder of Oasis Engineering, a local engineering outfit which offers civil, structural, and energy engineering to builders and developers. Sikander is passionate about sustainability and mindful of density in our inner core and cities. Sikander enjoys golfing and otherwise spent a lot of time with his wife and three daughters. So we met about four years ago now. Uh, you gave me a call and you talked my ear off about sustainability and energy efficiency, and I was just trying to keep up the whole conversation. And then I successfully found a way to convince you that you should join the idea board. Yeah, it's definitely something that uh, is near and dear to my heart. We've been involved in quite a few energy efficient builds, specifically net zero energy builds over the past six, seven years now here locally in Alberta. And uh, yeah, I just want to raise more attention to it and, you know, answer any questions that, you know, the general public and yourselves might have. Yeah, I really appreciate, uh, I feel like every board meeting, you're always raising new opportunities and issues and it's been fantastic. But can you tell me a little bit about the start or why you originally got into engineering? Was it always sustainability? I kind of grew up in a building family. I have family members that were builders and developers. Um, so I just kind of took an early liking to it, you know, being raised in the industry and kind of, you know, joining some of my, my family members on job sites and stuff at early ages. Um, eventually, you know, I throughout high school, I, I focused on maybe some of the more math and science type of uh, classes. And, you know, we found my way into the University of Alberta's engineering program. Yeah, you know, just always very, very much interested in buildings, building science and mechanics, and kind of ended up here. Um, Sustainability wasn't really taught too much in, in the university programs, but it was something that through my profession, through the consulting practice, we started kind of focusing a little bit more on creating value through energy efficient and sustainable principles. That's kind of where it went from there. Uh, engineering program at U of A is no joke. I have a bunch of friends who went through it. I felt like they were like punishing students. I don't know how you did. You went through it. I My hat's off for anyone who like decided that that was the career path they wanted to go through and then stuck through it. Like It was tough. The curves being like graded and like, if you got 40, you would, you would kill the course. And I was like, what kind of mental torture is this? It is, it is. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's very unique for sure. We had friends that were in, in different programs that had a lot more leisure time than we did. And uh, they always found, uh, they always found the best time to, you know, create assignments and all these extra 
extra labs and stuff that uh, would be in the evening. So it kind of sucked. But no, it's it a good program. Um, actually, something pretty cool that, that's happening this year, just on a side note, is uh, one of my professors reached out to me. One of my old professors reached out to me last year. Um, and he was introducing a new building walls, uh, a wall building system or an envelope system that um, we've now kind of gotten involved with him on. So it's it's cool. It's a, it's a small little local, you know, network of people that uh, are kind of working together. And to have my professor reach out to me was pretty cool. Yeah, definitely. That's fantastic to hear. Um, I know one of my favorite parts of going through the planning program at the U of A was the connections that we were able to make with the industry and with the city. And so having the U of A reach out to you, and I'm sure there's going to be students that are just going to like be over the moon to have you, whether you're in class or just consulting on anything. I love my time at the U of A. I was there for a long time, but those labs for engineering students, man, <laughs> they seem crazy. They were, they were pretty nuts. So you started or you founded Oasis Engineering. What kind of drew on that inspiration? Why did you take the leap? Uh, well, after school, I, I was consulting for a few years, um, working with a local consultant here in Edmonton. And then I joined the city of Edmonton for a few years after that. It was at the city of Edmonton where I kind of, you know, learned the ropes, learned the procedures and, you know, the policies and the procedures that are kind of in place found opportunities to maybe work as a consultant to assist builders and developers with what they're looking to build and maybe don't have the right guidance on. And yeah, I've successfully found my way into into uh, consulting. Yeah, we've been working on some really, really cool projects since then. I founded the company in 2011. And since then, we've, yeah, we've worked on thousands of projects that our, our local projects, we got pushed into BC a few years ago and uh, took a step back from some of that work to focus on more Alberta-based Alberta projects here in Edmonton, Calgary, the greater areas. Alberta's pretty keen and very aware of uh, energy efficient projects, net zero projects. I think as a percentage, Alberta has close to 50% of all of Canada's net zero energy buildings residential buildings, homes. Yeah, that was that was a stat from a couple of years ago. It might have changed now, but that's that's pretty considerable if you think about how how many people there are and how big Canada is and those projects being in Alberta. We've uh, we've been fortunate enough to be involved in a lot of those projects as well. Yeah, I've actually heard that from our past mayor, uh, Mayor Edison. He's talked a lot about uh, how Edmonton and Alberta has been leading the way in net zero for quite some time. And I believe even... Edmonton might have had the first net zero home in all of Canada. I will fact check all of this. <laughs> I don't think enough people know how interested Edmonton and Alberta is in sustainable development. Yeah, exactly. Being an oil and gas, you know, uh, province, I think it's uh, it's it's good to raise a little bit of awareness to the energy efficiency aspects of builds, and it's not necessarily just being a, a solar powered house or you know, fully electric. It's, you know, just small little principles like being an airtight house. Um, the tighter your home is, the less minus 30 air during your cold winter winter months is entering your house. And all that plays into, you know, your mechanical systems don't have to work as hard and such like that. So there's even, you know, there's small little energy efficiency improvements that can be recognized and changed. But as well, there's, you know, um, ultimately going all the way to net zero energy where, 
you know, you have a fully electric building most of the time and you, you know, you're powered by solar. So still tied to the grid, but uh, offset it by solar, I should say. Yeah, I think that's a good jump off point into our uh, kind of meat and potatoes here. What what exactly does net zero mean for a residential building? Yeah, so that's when I mentioned that offsetting um, with solar consumption um, would be the correct word. So a net zero energy building is a building that produces the energy that it consumes in a year. What's important there is, is that the houses out here are still tied to the grid. So you'll still be tied to the electrical grid. You'll be overproducing in the summer months, but you'll be underproducing in the winter months. And, you know, for obvious reasons, you've got the snow, you've got, you know, the, 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 the tilt, the, the solar tilt there as well, where the sun isn't as high in the winter as it would be in the summer. So there's, there's factors there, but as well, you're spending a lot of money on heating your homes in the winter when you wouldn't be in the summer. Overproduction in the, in the, in the summer months, because we have long sunny days, more so than I think anywhere else in all of Canada. That's, that's essentially what a net zero energy home is, is that you're producing as much as you consume. In the winter months, you'll still be drawing from the grid, but that overproduction you'll be you'll be getting paid back on through tying into the grid. Okay, so you're talking about net zero energy because there's, there's a lot of this terminology that's like floated around, right? Like uh, net zero carbon emission building, that's different than what you're talking about, right? Like yes. it's not offsetting your emissions, you're, you're just offsetting how much energy is being used. That's right. And you're, and you're right about that because, you know, there, there's net zero electric homes, which are your house will produce the amount of electrical demand the house will consume in a year. Um, but then it'll still have components of gas and, and whatever to the home. Um, net zero energy is essentially producing the amount you consume overall. And that would be electrical demand, gas. Um, majority of the projects, or I think almost all of the projects that we've been involved in, we've motivated our, our builders to consider going full electric and offsetting that electrical demand with solar. So these are fully electric homes with zero gas line. There's no gas line to the building. Those ones we found to be most economical in terms of life cycle costs of the building. Without you know going too much into that, gas prices are high, distribution and administrative fees are considerably higher for gas. And that's that's something that people need to be made aware of. People being everybody, the general population, most of them would know that, hey, I'm only paying $13 in consumption, but I'm paying $200 in administrative fees. That adds up. Yeah, it's pretty interesting. I, I think we'll dive deeper into that a little bit here, but just to kind of paraphrase here, it's it's a combination of producing enough energy to offset your consumption, but I'm assuming it's a lot about reducing your energy consumption as well. So energy efficiency is really important, right? Correct. Yeah. So it's, you look at it as a whole complete system. You can make any, any house net zero energy, but then I guess it's important to think that the better engineered it is in terms of air tightness, smaller mechanical systems will be less costly. It'll be less of a cost for your solar production needs as well. You could create any house into a net zero energy home, but it would be more economical to build it in a well-designed, well-thought-out way first. You know, just hypothetically speaking, 
large north-facing windows are losing a lot of heat. We were talking about air tightness there earlier where you got a bunch of holes in your walls and you know you aren't paying attention to it. You're going to have a larger mechanical system that has to offset that heating requirement. Your mechanical needs are going to be higher, thus your solar production requirements are going to be higher. So it's just it's one complete system to kind of get there. Every small bit helps. I'd like to get your take on why energy efficiency is so important to you. I, I know you've talked a little bit about the, the financial implications. I just saw a stat that in June, energy commodities are up 10%. They're like the highest cause of inflation right now is yeah. the like, you know, the fossil fuels and the gas and that kind of energy commodity. But yeah, I, I thought maybe you could talk about why energy efficiency is important to you or why you, what some of your clients are uh, requesting it for. There's multiple, there's multiple advantages um, to our clients, but to us personally as well. You know, me just from, from my point of view, from a sustainability point of view, you know, uh, reducing effects of climate change are quite important to us, not necessarily to our clients. That's not to say that we don't try hard to uh, educate them, but we, you know, we, we can't sell too, too hard on that as, as a business. Our attempt at educating them, but as well motivating them to consider energy efficient homes is to put that into dollars and cents and how that would make sense to them economically what the, I guess, um, advantages is, advantages to them economically would be. And that's where we, we could get into maybe some of the costs for building something like this. Um, you know, for example, uh, building a traditional home, let's say it's $500,000, you can build the same home for $550,000, $570,000. Um, depending on the homes, um, you know, we're seeing around 10 to 12% additional cost on average. That could change based on, you know, the types of builds, but on average, we're seeing for a general spec home, the $500,000, let's say, for example. So an extra $50,000 or $60,000 would go into all the extras you would need to get net zero energy. A homeowner who's going to live in that home would be interested to know how long it would take them to see that 50 or 60 grand back. So that's what's most important to some of our clients is explaining to them how long it's going to take them to see that 50 grand. We would, we would produce a life cycle cost calculation for them to show them that typically it would be paid back in 10 or 12 years. And that's just, you know, based on spec builds and average builds. So that's really interesting. So uh, in a couple of years, I'm looking hopefully to build my own home. Uh, and I'd love it if I had an engineer and a builder who would be able to walk me through uh, the pros and cons of different decisions that I could build a more energy efficient home. So long term, it's better for the, the world, the environment that we live in. Uh, but I also want to know how to take care of it and want to know what kind of that like cost benefit analysis uh, that you were just talking about is like. So for the average Mariah walking into your office. What uh? What are some things that you would break down for me? It would be really important for your builder to be aware of what your guys' expected costs would look like. And then based on that, energy efficiency improvements. So ultimately, not everybody's ready to go net zero energy. We would always influence our builders to consider even the smallest little improvements that can make a big difference. We talked about air tightness. There's no real inspections that are warranted from the city's end of things for ensuring that your home is airtight or even 
you know, an acceptable standard for airtightness. And, you don't, you know, like I said, like you don't have, there's no, there's no expectations for builders to be an airtight home as per building code. But, you know, even the level of airtightness can be, can vary from home to home in the same neighborhood, uh, door to door. I think that that would be very, very important. Um, how you test for airtightness is, you know, there, there's companies out there and we have one as well as it's, uh, there's a blower door unit or a blower door system which is used to pressurize a home. And once you pressurize a home, you can evaluate what um, the air change per hour is of that home. And that's what's, um, that's the value that would, that would be used to interpret the air tightness. So what's a good air tightness number? Or that's a hard question to answer. Um, I guess an industry standard for air tightness would be two, 2.5, you know, roughly around there is what, would be an acceptable industry standard, I, I think, in my view. But, um, you know, for net zero energy homes, the lower you go with, by, by the way, the lower the ACH, um, the air change per hour is the more aggressive, the better ACH. So for all of the net zero energy homes that we've worked on, they've been under 1.0 ACH. So, oh, yeah, 1.0 ACH is something that, you know, is going to get you to net zero energy. You know, sitting around that 2.0, 2.5, you could probably still get into zero energy. But like we said, there's going to be, you know, bigger mechanical requirements, more solar requirements. You know, like 2.0, I think, is fairly acceptable. If I had you come over to my parents' house, 1970s bungalow, what is a number that you would expect that might look like? It's probably going to not be too good and aggressive. Um, I'm expecting that it's not going to be fabulous. Yeah. And so, and, and that's, that's the important thing here as well is, is that, um, you know, old, older buildings, you know, different building standards, different building specifications and requirements back then. And, you know, it, it wouldn't blow too aggressively. I'm assuming maybe four or five ACH, but, uh, that's where the importance of finding, you know, good retrofit applications to existing homes is important for climate change. There's only so much effect new builds would have on climate change um you know majority of that effect is going to be to retrofitting existing buildings buildings that are over polluting buildings that are not as airtight over consuming how do i take my parents home from a four to a five to a two or or a one there's you know considerable work that would have to get done to that peter amarongan is the guy that you would want to talk to there with the energy sprung system they've brought some system from I want to say the Netherlands or something where they've used it on their new Sundance project and they've had some challenges with it, but I think it's, it's produced quite an airtight building. Um, but having said that, um, you'd, you'd have to strip those walls down to the, to the core to get a good ACH again. And that's, what's challenging in old projects is the feasibility to get those to be energy efficient builds and, there are programs that the city of Edmonton has, um, the, the Green Homes Grant and stuff like that. But, you know, those funds do only go a little ways when you're looking at the greater scheme of things. Like we're talking tens of thousands of dollars to rip and replace the existing exterior of the building and the funds don't go that far. I have a very basic question then. So the walls are a big problem. If I were to change the windows from a double to a triple pane, does that do significant work or because the walls are the way they are, you kind of have to do it all to make? No, no. Uh, you know, swapping out older windows for triple pane windows, um, there's a big difference from even slider windows to casement windows now. 
um, that have a nice rubber gasket and seal on them. You lock them, you hinge them. Um, so a triple pane window nowadays versus the 1970s build windows is a significant difference. Um, with regards to the air tightness again, spray foaming around the newly installed windows would go a long ways as well. Guaranteed it's not there now. Technologies weren't available back then, but um, these are all improvements. And that's why you're taking small steps, step by step is important to consider as well. Um, the funds can start adding up to retrofit existing buildings to get energy efficient or even net zero energy. Holy, a, a lot of clients will call us and they'll say, I love what you guys are doing and I want to I wanna change my existing house into a net zero energy house. Well, you know, how do I do that? You've got a gas furnace, you've got a gas stove, you've got a gas hot water tank. You know, you're prim primarily serviced off of gas. So retrofitting your existing house to get to net zero energy is going to be very, very challenging. Um, those are the considerations that we would take at an early stage in designing a home for net zero energy. And that's where we talked about a fully electric building is the most common and practical way to go, in my opinion. But there are other ways to achieve net zero energy as well that, you know, others will, will agree to. What you're saying is my brother's beautiful new stove that's like fancy and gas is not as fabulous as my electric one. Yeah, like it's probably more expensive and it's, you know, uh, but yeah, there's, it's not apples to oranges for sure. It's not apples to apples for sure. It's apples to oranges. Uh, and then have you worked on anything with uh, solar PV systems? Yeah, solar panels are installed on all of our net zero energy projects that we that we design and and help manage. It's what produces the the energy that's that's needed. So yeah, yeah, a lot of a lot of solar. So for our listeners that don't know, how do they store all that energy so that they can use it in the winter? So you don't store the energy. the The extra solar production during the summer months is delivered back into the grid. So you're, you're actually making money on it. And we believe it or not, like we are very, very sunny during the summer months and we produce a lot of solar during those summer months uh, on our net zero energy projects. So yeah, so selling back to the grid and then essentially in the winter months, you'd be consuming some energy back from the grid as well due to the lack of production and essentially breaking even on energy usage throughout the year. Yeah, it's true. Edmonton is actually the sunniest city in the world. Uh, it is one of my favorite facts about, Edm uh, about Edmonton. And yeah, Ryan, you make that face all you want, but I will fact check this. That is, that can't be right. You will only get drink over it. The sunniest. There's got to be some weird asterisk next to that. Well, well, I think I think Ryan was mentioning he was in California a little while ago. So Ryan, um, when did the sun go down? Oh, because it's it's how many hours it's the sun's actually up. It's because we're really north. I got you, Mariah. Thanks. <laughs> One of my friends is moving to Sweden. In their winters, they only get three hours a day. And they are mandated to make sure they don't work those hours so they actually see the sun. So, yeah, Edmonton's got it going on. Still going to fact check that. Could you combine all of this with a battery pack somehow? Does that increase some sort of uh, energy gain or efficiency? No, that increases uh, the cost of build. <laughs> <laughs> energy packs are very expensive. Uh, we have considered it on some of our projects. Uh, the Tesla battery pack is so fancy, so nice. And I'm a Tesla fan and I love them, but they're, they're not economical here. You know, in our climate anyways, um, you know, you'll store a day's worth of power there. But it's more so a backup plan for a blackout 
but you know it's you're not storing the amount of need that you think it is you know like you can't store weeks or months at a time on that battery pack so it's more economical to tie into the grid um you know sell back the 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 rates are not as bad as you think there are some local third party companies that you know are brokering these uh brokering the uh the energy to epcor to direct energy or whoever it might be and their rates are quite attractive they're for example for 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 my net zero home i'm changing providers every six months so i'm going from epcor to another third party provider like solar uh what, what are they called solar max who's a division of, of landmark homes i believe and going back to epcor in the in the winter months the the winter rates from epcor are more attractive in the summer months due to overproduction you're getting a very attractive rate from solar max and yeah like just finding a way to beat the system man yeah no kidding i did that with my cell phone bill for a long time so i didn't know you could <laughs> do that with your with your energy bills that makes a lot of sense you're not you're not committed to these contracts with your providers right it's not like a cell phone bill where you know it is a three year contract or whatever it is so you do have the ability to do that and uh until they catch on anyways i think it's uh i think it's uh, worthwhile considering for people that are uh producing solar at their home let it be net zero energy or not if you're both producing solar so i'm you made mention that you know retrofitting is very difficult and north facing windows are kind of an issue I, so my question is is every single property or lot able to have a net zero energy home on it can every single property incorporate everything that we just talked about or are you very specific about what you know alignment or direction the fa- uh, the lots facing like what kind of considerations go into choosing a lot for a net zero energy project you know that that's a great question and we deal with that all the time is because you know we deal with we deal with builders who don't want to even make any changes aesthetically to the home so for example north facing windows well i've got a house that's back in a ravine that happens to be north facing windows i want big windows on the back side of my house no not every house will achieve net zero energy most of them can some people will want to put more emphasis on aesthetics over energy efficiency and then some people vice versa so it's it's all finding a balance um you, you know it's not necessarily that you have to have a net zero energy home what i'm more focused on is just being more energy efficient let's build the most energy efficient home we can build on that lot and it's you know for for those considered aesthetics um we've got a we've got a good friend in the industry Haynes Homes that uh you guys know as well Ryan and he's he's working on a net zero energy home with us and he's got very very fancy homes he doesn't want to make much changes to the aesthetics even though i tried you know that's what his homes are known for that's why they're you know the builder that they are so we've we've taken that into account and considerations still putting up a very energy efficient home still putting up solar not achieving essentially net zero energy but we'll be very very close okay that makes a lot of sense and then um just back to kind of the the solar pv system are you first thing you're doing is chopping down all the mature trees on a piece of property to make sure it has the most solar exposure or are properties next to the ravine that might be blocked by a bunch of trees in the summer are are those kind of less likely to support your your solar system or what kind of considerations are there believe it or not our our buildings are high enough the pitches are steep enough that we don't really even need to cut down these trees 
you know, you've got 25, 30 foot trees, but your building is also 35 feet, 40 feet or whatever it might be high, um, you know, to the pitch of the roof or whatever it is. So it, it's never really been a concern or necessary uh, on, on our projects. You know, you have so many requirements for setbacks nowadays. You know, you have so many requirements for consideration of your neighboring lots and such, but it's it's never been, there's never been an issue that I can think of where we had to hack down a whole bunch of trees. Um, I can think of one project where we we did a net zero energy house out in Strathcona County and the developer or the builder there was, the builder owner was not keen on the appearance and the look of the solar panels. Um, over the fancy shingles that he's installed. So we had to do a pole mounted, I think they call it a pole mounted system at the back of the lot. And he cut down a bunch of trees there. And, you know, we weren't happy about it. And I don't think anybody was really happy about it, but he said, this is what I want. Um, his shingles, I think cost him around like $120,000, $140,000. Pretty fancy shingles. But yeah, he, he had a specific look that he was going for. Did he get them like uh, imported from Spain? I don't know what was going on with those shingles, but they're 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 pretty fancy looking. They're like the you know the thick clay shingle, and you know I get it. But uh, that was the only time I think you know tree clearing was involved in in one of these uh, residential builds. I I can't think of any other time. Has there ever been a situation where a bit of extra height would have helped uh, maybe add more sol- solar panels on? Absolutely, on every project we we deal with this all the time. I was dealing with this this morning actually is we have a net zero builder that's uh that's putting up a house or putting up a, a townhome in, in Windsor Park area and he's doing a net zero energy well he's trying to achieve net zero energy and we're we're designing it but we don't have the solar consumption that we need on that lot via you know the existing I think is 412 pitch so our architect's gone back to the city to request for variances and you kind of go through that and you you deal with that whole hurdle and process, but, and there's no guarantees to that. Where we are in Edmonton right now, it's opti- what's optimal is I think 50 or 52 degrees. There's no municipality that's gonna allow that on a two-story home, right? Like that's huge, that's a 12-12 pitch, right? So, right, am I doing math? No, that's even more than that. That's like a 15-12 or whatever it is, right? So it's a very, very steep roof and you're not really going to see that out here unless you're a one-story bungalow that's building isn't economical at that point or whatever the situation might be. But on a two-story home where, you know, in majority of these infill projects that we're working on, they're two-story homes, you're densifying the neighborhood, you're doing skinnies, three plexes, four plexes, whatever it is. The majority of them are two stories. Almost all of them are two stories. So doing a very steep pitch like that would be an eyesore, but as well, it would be, you know, really damaging on your your neighbor for, you know, I guess, shading his lot sometimes. The only consideration that I would, you know, want city council and city officials to consider is maybe lessening the requirement. Nobody's asking for that 13, 15, 12 pitch. But if you go from 412 to a 712 pitch, it's a considerable change on efficiency and production of solar so you don't need as many you need considerably less actually wow that's really interesting i didn't know that yeah so that's that's i think is what's worth considering is to maybe not lessen the requirements but make it a little bit easier to you know uh, builders that are looking to build energy efficient homes because this is just another drawback right if the solar system is going to cost 
$50,000 on this building when it could have cost thirty-five dollars or $40,000 on this building. That that could have been the deciding factor for this builder to consider that. Um, you know, like I'm, I'm considering uh, the gentleman who's building the fourplex. So it's, it's you know, these are these are pretty big numbers. And for a residential home, for a single family residential home, it would be a difference of maybe like twenty-five or thirty thousand dollars to like seventeen to twenty thousand dollars. So it's it's a considerable change. Yeah, that all of a sudden makes the feasibility so much like you're able to get grants for it and cover the majority of it. Like the decision makes it so much easier for homeowners. And yeah, I'm happy that you highlighted that grant there as well, because the grants are quite attractive here locally. I do encourage awareness of of the Green Homes Grant, but as well, like some of the other grants that are available, we get solar, re- or not solar rebates, but the solar grant from the city of Edmonton. The provincial government, I think, had one, but then pulled it, and then the city is increasing theirs. There's a bunch of stuff going on, but, you know, it's it's, it's an ever-dynamic um, scene out there. I, I, I do encourage everyone that's on the fence to consider some of those grants. Um, for my house personally, you know, I think I my solar system was $24,000, and then I ended up paying out-of-pocket with the grants just shy of $15,000. Yeah, so like if we can bring the cost down by just changing the roof pitch, like think of how many more people would be willing to make that leap. Absolutely, and those and those are those are those are big numbers, right? So and that's free money right now, and you know that overproduction is producing you money as well. So I think it's important to note that as well. Actually, in our discussions when we talked about this extra cost to build a net zero energy home, um, you know it's ten or twelve percent to build that home. What needs to also be considered is, is that you're your own utility provider at that point. So once you've paid off this capital cost as well, you're cash flowing those utilities for the rest of your life in that house, right? And I think that's really important to consider. Joe Blow living in XYZ Builder's home right now is paying $300, $400 a month every month for the rest of their life. That money is going to the utility providers, whereas... You know, if you're your own utility provider, you can imagine that that's going back into your pocket. Yeah, long term, it makes it so attractive. Right now, um, I know a big deterrence is the interest rate hikes and how much people are eligible for and qualify for. So that is really not helping our case to build energy efficient homes because 500 grand only goes so far nowadays. Just another hurdle, man. The average home price in Canada, I believe, is seven hundred grand. In Edmonton, it's five sixty. Calgary, it's five eighty. Yeah. So it's it's tough out there. One of the other things that I find really interesting, uh, and I've had a few members, including yourself, talk to me about, is wall thickness. Yeah. And if we create thicker walls, it seems like it's quite an impact on how energy efficient the building is, but. When you create a thicker wall, it either either has to be thicker on the inside or the outside of the building. And I, I think there's an opportunity here to allow an increase in site coverage for more sustainable buildings. That would be very, very welcomed on our end if, you know, the, the city and the councillors would consider maybe alleviating some of those site coverage requirements for energy efficient builds like this. Um, various builders do it different ways. Um, we've talked about a couple of uh, other net zero builders like Peter guys, Peter Amarongan's group. Um, you know, they they tend to go with a 14 inch double stud wall for their net zero projects. Um, 
you know, considering that that will eat into the inside space of that home, that can be a make or break as well for for houses that are being built in infill neighborhoods specifically because you're limited in your lot size. Um, these these lots are typically subdivided for skinny homes. You've got a, a 25 foot lot with a 17 foot house and, you know, 14 inches on both sides can be can be quite we found some other ways to do it. We typically on our projects will will use a one stud wall, um, two by six, two by eight sometimes, sometimes staggered studs. It depends on the projects, and um, and apply an EFIS insulation on the exterior of the buildings. Um, we do that for multiple reasons, but we found that it doesn't impact the interior space quite as much. That EFIS insulation is is quite expensive and it's it's one consideration project to project there are various considerations for net zero energy projects so um we'll consider it all but we have done these projects here recently with just a single stud wall um just one way to to battle that whole site coverage issue yeah i think our rules need to reflect the city we're trying to build and i really appreciate that this council uh talks a lot about like every decision as a climate decision and i'm hoping to see that reflected as we redo the zoning bylaw one of the other things that is just, besides actually, one of the other things is I love the word EFIS. I think it's the funniest word ever. And every time, I mean, in, in the call with you around energy efficient, every time someone says it, I'm like, yes, then we need to say this word more. <laughs> you want me to elaborate on what that means? Yeah, yeah, please. <laughs> yeah, so EFIS is an exterior insulated uh, foam that uh, that's applied to the outside exterior sheathing of the house. So essentially it's a foam board, a continuous foam board that's going to be applied to the exterior wall of your house. And there's insulation attributes to it, but uh, if applied properly, there's air barrier and vapor barrier uh, attributes to it as well, depending on which one you're doing and which one's being specified. It's quite foolproof. So we do like using it. Uh, a big a big challenge on our projects that we talked about here today is, you know, air tightness. The tighter the home, the easier it is to get to net zero energy. The leakier the home, oh man, it's it's tough, right? So with the EFIS, because it's an air it's an air barrier as well, if applied properly, it's an extra layer of protection. So the more airtight, the better. That's an air barrier. You've got your interior poly that's applied as well, which is an air barrier, vapor barrier. So you've got essentially two layers of air barrier on the house. If it gets through one, maybe it won't get through the other or it'll be reduced. So the air tightness is a little bit more aggressive and, and better in those houses. Um, so we do like see, seeing that applied. It's it's kind of dummy proof when you um, have that on the, on the outside as well. You've got contractors that are ripping open poly and not patching it up because he's an electrical trade and he doesn't care and he doesn't know and it doesn't get relayed onto who needs to know about it and it gets buried behind some drywall. So, you know, that extra layer of protection does help uh, when the builder maybe isn't as involved in the build um, sometimes. So, so we do like specifying that on some projects. Um, and yeah, they've got other attributes as well, like we talked about with insulation. So to get to net zero energy, you have to have a very well insulated building. Air tightness is one component, but it has to be well insulated as well. That's going to reduce the mechanical requirements as well. It's like a thermos, right? You know, you keep your hot tea in that thermos. And, you know, if it's a well insulated thermos, that tea's going to stay hot for a while. So 
similar similar type of thing with these net zero energy homes. If it's a well insulated building, um, it won't lose heat. If it's not losing heat, you will not need to reheat as well. Yeah, I just recently bought a thermos that was very disappointing. Oh yeah. <laughs> I left my I left it in my car. I had ice water in it, and when I came back after a couple hours, went for lunch and grabbed ice cream, the the water was hot, and I was like, "Well, that didn't work." <laughs> Are there better uh, performing materials for energy efficiency as well? Like if we just built everything with steel stud walls or concrete or anything, regardless of cost, would that be um, better for energy efficiency, or the way we're doing it is the best? Cost would play a big factor into it. Um... You know, concrete's concrete's pretty good. Uh, the application of concrete is pretty good. We've did we've done one house that the builder ended up kind of beating into the budget pretty quickly on was uh, a fully built concrete home with wood trusses, and yeah, like that added up big time. I I think the way we're doing it now is, and and it's not just you know us. It's 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 our whole building community. Um, there's a lot of builders out there. If you guys research, there's a lot of builders out there that are now venturing into net zero energy homes. Um, we're working with a few spec builders now that are, you know, some of Edmonton's largest volume builders that are venturing into the net zero space as well and bringing this to a spec level. And the way they're doing that is to, you know, sell the value of these homes in a marketing way. And, you know, I think we've kind of touched on it and they'll pretty it up and they'll put it into a nice little pamphlet for some of their potential buyers. But, essentially, um, you know, proving that the costs do make sense. In terms of building materials, I think any type of building material that has a good thermal resistance property, uh, R values, we did one project in Prince Charles that utilized an EFIS stucco exterior. So if an EFIS uh, stucco exterior, I can't remember if it had three or four inches of foam on that house or uh, uh, townhouse. But we also found this insulated foam board that looked like stone. So it, it appeared to be stone. And if you were to walk up close to it, you'd still think it was stone until you maybe touched it. And it was a foam board. You know, there's there's various products out there in the industry. And that foam board was created to have, you know, thermal resistance properties. It had a good R value and it appeared, aesthetically it appeared to be, you know, a stone material. A great alternative for, for, you know, builders and homeowners to consider. Um, but other than that, you know, you've got other insulation options as well. So I think anything with a, you know, an insulation factor or a thermal resistance factor is, is something that could be advantageous for the build. So we have quite a few listeners in the Edmonton area in Canada, uh, some around Canada and outside of Canada even. But if you're local, is there a favorite project that you've worked on that someone could go walk by, bike by, a beautiful example of an energy efficient development. They've all been great projects. I know Ryan's one is going to be pretty cool because that'll be like a showstopper type of type of project. And you'll have to let me feature that in multiple ways. Through yeah, no, that's, that's going to be a, a pretty cool project. We had three clients that are brothers that built out in Strathcona County. I think we talked about a uh, project there earlier. Those were Western Canada's largest net zero energy homes. Um, all three of them. Yeah. So one brother did the next and it was hilarious, but it was, yeah, very, very, very cool projects, very unique projects. A lot of, a lot of spray foam. They, they did it in a way that was, um, 
quite unique as well, utilizing a single wall system uh, with staggered with studs, but a lot of spray foam. And yeah, just uh, really proud about those projects as well. Yeah, there's there, there's multiple projects. We can, I could extend a list of projects. I don't want to say, you know, whose is better or whose is worse, but those projects, just because of the, I guess, uh, the significance, yeah, like in terms of size was, was pretty cool to hear that. Um, I actually sit on the Net Zero Council uh, with CHPA, and we were notified about that through them. They were, they were the ones that made us aware of that. And I'm like, wow, really? I never knew that. That's awesome. I know also that you worked on a project in North Sonora. I think it was affordable housing project, multifamily uh, church development. Yeah, yeah. That was a, a church and a, a multi, I think it was an 18 unit, multi-unit housing project that Habitat Studio was involved in for a local nonprofit organization. Very cool project. P- Peter Amarangan was, you know, the head of that project there and leading the team and you know, if if nobody's you know recognized that name or heard that name, he's he's the he's the net zero guru, right? Like he's the one that kind of set the paved the way for everybody out here, and you know taught us a lot as well along the ways. And yeah, it was a it was quite a unique project. I think it was for underprivileged families as well. So you know, very fortunate to be involved in that project. There's there's numerous projects that we that we've been involved in. Um, I'd be more than happy to extend uh, projects um, as of late and current projects, net zero energy projects that we're working on now. And if anybody is interested in learning more about them, we could we could share some details. So we talked a little bit about uh, our wishes for zoning bylaw changes, but uh, building codes seems to be um, requiring more energy efficiency uh, more and more so. But what, what do you see the future of um, kind of building code energy efficiency requirements? Do you see any future where net zero energy is required? Yeah, like uh, the city of Edmonton specifically has a very aggressive net zero energy agenda, uh, 2030, every home has got to be net zero ready. 2030 is right around the corner. I don't know if we're going to achieve that, but let's see. That's a very aggressive target. I, I do think that's where the industry is headed. There are, you know, energy efficient changes on a national, but as well a provincial and municipal level. So, you know, these building code changes are in effect, but they aren't as aggressive as we would like to see them, I guess, through IDEA and other organizations I'm involved in some, you know, voluntary type of boards. And in a couple of them, it always comes up that, you know, should we incentivize this or make it uh, more attractive for builders to consider this if we do X, Y, Z. And I think that that's what it's going to take to, you know, get there um, by 2030 before or after. I think, you know, there has to be some sort of, there has to be some sort of communal effort from, you know, the municipality to incentivize this. It's it's costly for builders to do this. We talked about how there's value to a builder's, to a builder owner to build and to own and reside in that house. But we didn't really touch on the value to builders that build to sale, build to sell. And uh, I think that's what's important is, is that, you know, you've got four large volume builders on the same street with show homes, all selling for 500, 500, 500, and then the last guy selling for 550. So he's got a hard time selling for 550 because he needs Ryan and his family to really understand what the value is there. Educational awareness is important. And I think that that's something that the city can get involved in. And maybe that could be a way to incentivize or just to maybe consider some of the stuff that we talked about earlier, where 
site coverage requirements can be alleviated, height constraints can be alleviated, you know, maybe not alleviated, maybe that's the wrong word, but, you know, can be reduced, you know, in consideration of what the builder's considering. We're working on a large multifamily project, I think I shared with you, uh, Mariah, before. Um, we're working on a large multifamily project that's really restricted by the zoning constraints. The planners and the architects have applied for a DC2 zoning outside of what the traditional zoning for that area is. And, you know, this is up your alley there, right? I, I don't know much about this, but like, you know, the McCreenan area has requirements for RE8 or whatever it is. And, you know, there's, they're saying that they can get better unit count by going the DC2 option way. And it would be more attractive to consider energy efficiency if we get more units out of the build. And we're doing our very best to, you know, motivate the client to consider that. But, you know, going from 48 units to, I think it was 62 units is a considerable change. So, you know, just working with consultants, working with builders is, is something that I would encourage city councilor to, city councilors to, to consider. We're in this interesting time where we're in an affordability crisis and so we're in a climate crisis. So to make every decision a climate decision, we also have to incentivize citywide and educate people citywide to make those changes happen. So that being said, the last thing we do on the podcast is we give our guests uh, the ability to have a call to action to all of our listeners uh, who definitely learned a lot in today's episode, uh, because I think Ryan and I learned a lot about pitches in today's episode. So do you have a call to action for our listeners here today? I would encourage, I guess, you know, energy conscious or energy motivated, you know, listeners to, you know, speak to family, speak to friends, you know, uh, just kind of use some of the information here that they've maybe learned from or hopefully learned from, do their own research and, you know, maybe try to understand the economics and the advantages behind it. 10 years ago, or, you know, even five years ago, if you were saying you were going to build a net zero energy home, you'd be thinking, okay, I'm going to put up a $1 million, $2 million house or something. Whereas it's, it's quite affordable. It's not unaffordable to consider building a net zero energy home. And if done properly, it could be actually more affordable so, you know, bringing that awareness to the community, to, you know, counselors and city staff, I think is very important. So if there's a way to do that and achieve that, I would, I would encourage our listeners to, to help, you know, push the word out there. Is there a favorite webinar or a favorite webinar or a podcast or a newsletter that you like to read or listen to that people can check out more information? Um, no, we, yeah, we're pretty, we're pretty, uh, outdated when it comes to, you know, um, the website and social media and stuff like that. But, you know, um, I think, uh, there's some good resource material on the city of Edmonton's website. Um, they could refer to the CHBA's website as well, which is the Canadian Home Builders Association website. And, uh, I know that there's a net zero council link on there and they could learn about what net zero energy homes are. If I haven't sold them on it, I'm sure that that, uh, that website will. <laughs> well, I'll make sure that our listeners give you a call to learn more. Well, thank you so much for spending your afternoon with us, Sikander. I know you just got back into town yesterday, uh, so you've got a busy, busy week ahead of you. I appreciate you guys' time. Thanks, Sikander. Well, that was an amazing episode. I knew going into this that I would learn a ton from you and Sikander, and I was so excited all week, and the two of you did not disappoint. Yeah, thanks for lumping me in there, but I think Sikander carried that conversation. He was uh, he gave a lot of good information that I thought was fascinating. What was your favorite? 
Uh, I really liked that the cost of like doing sustainable development has significantly reduced over the past years. Like it is not this egregious cost that people, I think, I don't know if there's still a stigma about it. I thought it was more expensive. So I'm sure there's a bit of a stigma about it, but it's only 10 to 12% more for a net zero home. Like that's unbelievable. Like we're, we're in the days. I agree with you wholeheartedly. I had no idea that it was that close. Um, I know that the, like the technology has been increasing. Our appliances are always getting more efficient. Our building methods are getting more efficient. And then like the cost of things like solar panels have been going down over, over the years, but 10 to 12% seems like nothing. I, I, I agree with you. That was the most fascinating part for me as well. What I didn't find fascinating and what I didn't really enjoy was uh, the fact that you two basically bullied me into thinking that Edmonton is the sunniest city in the world. So what did I do this past week, Mariah? <laughs> I've researched this. I've researched the crap out of this because I don't like being called out on my own show <laughs> in front of everybody. So without further ado, the two of you said Edmonton is the sunniest city in the world. I got to tell you, it doesn't even crack the top 10. All right. There are <laughs> three cities in Arizona, Yuma, Phoenix, and Tucson that are in the top 10. Yuma is number one in the world. It gets over 4,000 hours of sunlight per year. Um, Edmonton gets 2,345 on average per year. So that's almost half. So Edmonton doesn't even crack the top 10. You want me to read the top 10 or you want me to just continue on my rant? No, definitely read the top 10. All right. Here's the top 10 global cities that get the most daylight. So the sunniest cities in the world. Yuma, Arizona is number one. Phoenix, Arizona is number two. Aswan in Egypt, number three. Las Vegas, Nevada, number four. Dongola in Sudan, number five. Tucson, Arizona, number six. Faya in Chad, number seven. Karga in Egypt, number eight. Abu Hamad in uh, Sudan is number nine. And El Paso, Texas is number 10. Did you hear me say Edmonton there? <laughs> no, but clearly Arizona is a bomb place to live. Arizona, yeah. I mean, it is a desert. Yeah, but you would never have seasonal depression because <laughs> there is no seasons yeah no it'd be it'd be incredible there actually yeah and just to kind of round out this thought el paso gets uh which is number 10 on the list gets about 3700 uh hours of sunlight per year again edmonton 2345 now in canada which may be what you were talking about and i'm going to give you the benefit of the doubt Edmonton's in the top three, and it's it's Calgary, Edmonton, Winnipeg for the three sunniest cities in Canada. Edmonton and Calgary are like within about 50 hours of each other. So it's very, very close. Um, benefit of the doubt, which I'm not going to give you because of all the mean things you two said to me, uh, Edmonton could be the sunniest city in Canada. Yeah, so I picked up that fact, or what was I thought a fact, uh, during the pandemic, when I was trying to learn more about sustainable development and solar panels, net zero homes. So there was a past credible person that I definitely think said interesting things and I am misremembering. So I need to go back clearly and rewatch that webinar. Uh, so yeah, why don't you fact check me again? Because I know it's coming. <laughs> that didn't sound like an apology, but I'll take it. Yeah. So at, at least you got your information from some other non-credible source and just ran with it. Good. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I'm bugging you. Uh, the only other thing uh, that we needed to fact check, the first net zero home in all of Canada, uh, Sikander said that was in Edmonton as well. Multiple sources on the internet, which you know is right, say that it was in Saanich, BC. So uh, those are the only two things I wanted to bring up, which I spent my entire week doing. Um, 
yeah, is there anything else that we need to talk about here? No, it's just, I am impressed that you looked up all that stuff and I am hopeful uh, that maybe Edmonton has a lot of net zero homes and we're just going to crush it over the next, what is it, eight years till 2030 when we have our, our goal of uh, net zero and sustainability stuff. So fingers crossed. Yeah, there's a, like, and maybe I should be clear, like, we still get a lot of sunlight. It may not be in the top 10 in Canada, but I mean, Sikander made it very clear that it is possible here. It's it's a very good climate to have net zero uh, energy homes for sure. So, oh, I was going to say the other fact that I really liked uh, that Sikander and you talked about was the roof pitches and how that makes a drastic difference on how much sunlight they can collect with solar panels. Because I think there is that stigma of like how pitchy can your roof be or how flat should your roof be uh and sometimes there's like different reasons why you want a different look to your home so a lot of design work goes into it for sure yeah but anyways back to your point there about the net zero energy homes and and maybe we'll see more there's there's lots of companies actually in edmonton in my research i found um a lot of companies locally some in infill some suburban that um, produce net zero homes. So there's a lot of companies in Edmonton that are doing it. So I'm assuming and hoping that we see lots more in the future. Um, I don't think we can do anything about getting more sunlight, but uh, we can use what we already get. Yeah, more efficiently. I'm sure we're underutilizing the sunlight here in Edmonton. Probably. Well, uh, thanks so much for hanging out with me on a Friday afternoon. Before we go, I just wanted to give a huge shout out to Sean who listens to our podcast. He is a lover of Edmonton. Uh, I'm very engaged in the Edmonton uh, development community was what he said when he talked to me last. Um, so yeah, thanks so much, Sean, for listening to the podcast. And I hope you enjoyed the episode. Appreciate you, Sean. Go enjoy the sunlight, Mariah. See you later, Ryan.